coming to you live from Canada. Here comes your game-changing, life-transforming turning point moment. <clears throat> yes, this is the sign you've been looking for. You're listening to Engage City Church. Powered by hope, not hype. Online at engagechurch.ca. We are in week four of, of our series, Dreams, and we've been looking at the, this, uh, this concept, uh, really, of work, because everybody loves work, right? We, we love the idea of waking up, going to a job, having the hustle, getting, no, no one, some people do, some people don't. It's this great thing. Now, here's the incredible thing about work is that we often think that work uh, is, is not good. It's not, it couldn't be from God. It's got to be from the devil. It must have happened after the fall of man, after they eat that fruit, after sin came into the earth. Work could have not been possible to be there uh, at the beginning of time. Now, here's the incredible thing. When God created the earth, he made, he rolled up his sleeves, went to work, Started like a beautiful craftsman, putting together this earth. And then we find that he made Adam, and then he's like, it's not good for Adam to be alone. He's going a little stir-crazy in here, makes Eve. And then we stumble upon Genesis 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Turn to somebody, because I like to do this apparently today, and say, work. <laughs> work. God sent Adam to work in paradise. How could work be a part of paradise? Now, when we talk about this idea of work, we're not just talking about your job or your vocation. We're talking about your craft. Uh, and in oftentimes, we're talking about your gift, your talent, and ability that's been given to you by God. Sometimes that results in your gift, your talent, your ability, the grace, whatever word you want to use in your life. Sometimes that results in that being your full-time job, but sometimes it doesn't. It just doesn't mean we, don't, we, we neglect it because it's not our primary vocation. But God wants to do something wherever you are. And this is the first message that, that we spoke, and it's been a theme that's going through, that there's purpose in your place. Now, if you haven't listened, I want to encourage you to go back because that's like three weeks of premium content for free. Um, but we're going to pick up where we left off last week in Esther chapter 4. For those of you who recall, Esther was the original contestant on The Bachelor. Uh, she, she's a reality show star of her time. They, they, they found the most beautiful women uh, in the whole country to become the new queen to replace the other one because she offended the king. And they put them in a home for a year. They, so does this sound familiar? They put all these ladies in a house together for a year. For six months, they lathered them up in lotions and oils and spices and made them smell nice. And they fattened them up because they probably weren't coming from from good regions and they gave them good food to eat and probably gave them a I don't know I don't know like lots of guacamole or something they just had a great time and uh, and then they all got to go before the king and uh, it gets the details get a little uh, graphic at that point and then the king ends up selecting a new queen now Esther found favor with the host of the bachelor who was the eunuch who was taking care of all the ladies. And she also found favor with the king. She was the favorite of both. Uncovered is a plot that one of the king's advisors wants to kill all the Jews. Up until this point, Esther had not disclosed that she was a Jew. And so God used this reality star to save an entire nation of people. This is what it says in Esther 4.16. 
Go and gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And I'll just drop this backdrop. It was against the law for you to go and talk to the king. Like, you just don't stroll into a throne room and talk to the king. You only come when you're called. And so for her to walk, to go say, hey, I just need to say hi. Can I just say something to you for a minute on that night's throne that you have? Unless he calls you, he can decide whether you live or die in that moment. So she says, I'm, I'm going to go. I'm going to go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. We talked about over the last few weeks, one of the things we've talked about is, are you a slave to your gift? Does it own you? Does your gift or your grace own you? We know that it owns us or that it consumes us when we say things like, man, I only feel like I come alive when I do blank. Because what's happened is we found our identity, our purpose, and we found everything, the joy, the fulfillment, our contentment. We've put our identity and our place in our gift, our talent, and ability, and not in the person who gave it to us in the first place. What we talked about last week is, does the palace own me? You know, when I look across this room, I look at people, and I see people with degrees, distinctions, diplomas. I see uh, people with master's degrees. I know there's people with PhDs. I see a distinguished group of people. I see people, even if you are working the lowest paying job in the province of Alberta, you are making more than 90% of the people on the face of this earth. So I see people who are living in the palace. And so the question is, does the palace own me? Am I willing to do whatever it takes to stay in this, this position of power, this position of influence, or am I willing to do whatever Jesus needs me to do in that moment? For I've been called for such a time as this. Esther 4.14. See, when I read these words, if I perish or perish, something incredible happens. In my head, I start hearing, like, the Rocky soundtrack playing. Chariots of Fire, Top Gun. I don't know, pick your movie, famous movie soundtrack. For me, it's dun 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 We actually have it on the computer, but we're not going to. We won't go there. Uh, and uh, I, I hear it playing, and I start getting pumped up. I say, yeah, if I perish, I perish. Yeah. I want to do something for Jesus. And I get pumped up when I read these accounts and I get into the story and I get like deeply into it because I'm like, I just get motivated. I get, I get, I get excited. Like God wants me to do something. He's got a plan. He's got a purpose for my life. There's a destiny and the soundtrack plays and I get jacked up and I get pumped up and I get excited. Every time I hear if I perish, I perish. And you're like, why do you want to die so badly? Because in our culture, you don't die, but we treat it like we do. Oh, if I make this stand, if I say what I actually believe, I'm going to be crucified. We say those words. Now, social media doesn't help. Lynch mob is the better definition of social media. But we begin to guard what we say and be careful with what we do and the way that we, the way that we work or the way we hustle. We kind of live in isolation as afraid of getting picked off. But is it possible that God put you in your place for a reason, that you're supposed to be there to reach somebody, that, that there's something bigger behind what you're doing? Even if you hate your job, did you know that it's possible that God put you there? In fact, it's more than likely that he put you there as a beacon of hope. Now, here's, here's, we're going to dig a little deeper into this. 
we all are conditioned to have a certain response. So when we hear these words, I perish, I perish, when we think about the idea of doing th- something for Jesus, doing something for God, we all have a different response and a different way that we want to tackle that based on the way that we were raised, where we come from. And you're like, oh, no, that's not true. I just want to do something for Jesus. No, no, the where you come from impacts the way you want to do something, not yet. And I'm going to, before I get to a list on the screen, I'm just going to run down a few of these things to give you an idea of what I'm talking about. So if you come from an ecumenical, an ecumenical or a mainline kind of tradition, then for you the idea of doing something for Jesus is strongly rooted in the idea of social justice. So then when we say, I'm going to do something for God, it, it, all, it ends up gravitating back towards social justice. For, for, for us, and if you come from that background, it says, my faithful work demands the application of distinctly Christian ethics. That's really wordy, but that's what it means. I need to do something, and I need to do something good for people. If you come from a mainline ecumenical background, that's generally where we default to. If you come from a church that was a part of, like, the small group movement, where it's like, let's just do something in cells and, like, do something small, then that's something different as well. Uh, we, We... Default to that believers need to care and provide some support and nurture for one another. And we want to do that in small groups. So then our definition of faithful work is something that says faithful work, you know, requires inner renewal and transformation. So it impacts the way you respond. Maybe if you're like me, you come from a charismatic, uh, revivalist, evangelical kind of background. Then you look at your work and you say that my workplace is the mission field. And I'm here for one person, for one reason. I'm going to chase down that one soul. I will talk to my cubicle partner. I will let them know the power of Jesus Christ. I will pray for them. I'm, you know, and you're like, man, this is my mission field. This is my thing. You're like, oh, yeah, okay. So it doesn't matter where we come from. The way that we've been raised or the way that we, uh, where we come from kind of determines the way we want to respond and the way we want to do work well to bring honor and glory to Jesus. If you're looking for something older, like 16th century Protestant reformers, Luther, Calvin, John Calvin. There you go. Throw it all the way back. Rolling it back. They argued that all work, even secular work, was as much a calling from God as a monk, a priest, or a pastor. And I'm going to I agree with that. So that definition then starts to shift. And we, we find that if, if you're someone from that background, that faithful work, uh, means that you're the finger of God, the hand of feet of Jesus, and you want to do a work that not only cares for creation, but directs and structure it. That, that our work or our faithful work, doing something for God, is working towards a universal human flourishing, which is the definition of the Hebrew word shalom. So it gets a little more complex because now we've, we've come together and we've gathered here under, under this banner and we want to do something for Jesus, but we can find ourselves at times frustrated with one another because no one shares the passions the way that I do about the thing that I think means that I'm doing something for Jesus. So then we get mad at each other and we get divided, and it's not, it's not like public anger, though. It's kind of like, well... I go to work to share my faith with my friends. I don't know what you do there. (laughs) Or what good is it if all you do is play Hillsong Worship in your cubicle if you don't do any good for society like volunteer at the food bank? 
So we begin to position ourselves as the, the one true person doing the one true work of God. I'm going to show you this list. This is maybe a more complete list of what I'm talking about. So these are all the different ways that, uh, depending on our background, that we think that we should work to do something for Jesus. We think that we should further, the, the best way to serve God at work is to further social justice, to, person, uh, to be personally honest and evangelize your colleagues, uh, to just do skillful, excellent work. Maybe you think the best way to serve God at work is to create beauty. Maybe it's to work from a Christian motiv- motivation to glorify God, seeking to engage the church and influence culture to that end. Maybe you want to work with a grateful, joyful, gospel-changed heart through all the ups and downs, so you're just that person who goes, you know what, my life is in shambles, but Jesus loves you, and I'm having a great day. Um, <laughs> you generally come out of the Word of Faith movement. Okay, do whatever gives you the greatest joy and passion. Or we think that maybe the best way for us to serve God at work is to make as much money as we can so that you can be as generous as you can. Now, that's, that's like, this is like a partial list. And this is dependent on two things, your background, and it's also dependent on something else, your personality. This list is also in your notes on version. if you're trying to scramble and get it down. Make sure you save those notes to your phone. So... We want to do something for Jesus, but then we look at this list and we, we come to terms with our feelings, our emotions, the way that we think we should do it, what God wants us to do. We read a whole bunch of relevant magazines trying to find a purpose and a direction for our life. And then we, we come to this place where like, I just don't know what to do. What does God actually want me to do? I'm not going to do anything because I don't know what God wants me to do. And this is the answer to the question that you've been looking for. All of the above. You know, uh, in high school, we used to do these Scantron tests. You ever do those Scantron tests where you had to have your number two pencil, have it sharpened, get that thing ready to go, and then the teachers, you know, they were a lazy bunch. They, you know, they just wanted to feed your answers through the machine and get the, ah, Matt's a teacher and he's shaking his head at me. Uh, yeah, they just, they're so busy. Um, summer's off. <laughs> I'm burning all kinds of bridges today. And so, me and my fellow classmates deciphered, yeah, we deciphered that um, teachers, or my teachers at least, always put all of the above as D. So, if you didn't really know the answer to the question, you might as well give it a shot at D. Because, I mean, I feel like I I could more, if you put me in a room with that teacher, I could morally justify my response as all of the above. And yet here we are confronted with, I just want to live a life of purpose and passion. I want to do something for Jesus. How do I do it? And we become overwhelmed by trying to figure out where we even start. Right? And so by trying to figure out where to start, we don't start. We just live on pause. Because there's so many choices. There's so many things I could do. My background says this. My theology says this. My personality says this. And then the Bible goes and drops this one on me, Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Great. Knowing that the Lord, uh, that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. 
Ecclesiastes 9 verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. These are great verses, but it's, it's a real difficult situation because you're like, I hate my job. I hate where I work. I've kind of settled into this nice routine of just kind of like watching the hours click by. I'm the person at the end of the shift who's letting everybody know it's 2 o'clock, two hours ago. It's 2.01, hour and 59 minutes to go. And then God says that I'm not actually working for my boss who I hate. Or my manager who just doesn't get me. And then we're left in this conundrum, so what do we do? We end our, up at the beginning of Ecclesiastes 1 verse 2 saying, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Why don't we go over to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah is a, is a cupbearer. We started to talk about the person of Nehemiah last week. Nehemiah was a cupbearer, which means he would sip all the drinks and taste the food before the king did, so that if anyone was going to die, it was Nehemiah and not the king. So it was a real trust-based relationship with Nehemiah and the king. And I'm, I think as long as he's alive, his job satisfaction is fairly high because he's keeping the boss alive. And if he dies, then he, you know, it's a bad day at the office. So there's Nehemiah, and this is what happens with Nehemiah. Hanani, which is a great name. One of my brothers came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. They said to me, things are not going well for those who returned to the province of Judah. They're in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard this, Nehemiah, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. Let me fast forward to Nehemiah chapter 2. Early the following spring in the month of Nisan, during the 20th year of King Artax, uh, that guy, reign, I was serving the king his wine. I never before appeared sad in his presence. So the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You're sick. I'm sick. I'm about to die. That's what he's thinking. You must be deeply troubled. Then I was terrified. But I replied, long live the king. How can I not be sad for the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire? The king asked me, well, how can I help you? With a prayer to the God of heaven. I just cut it off there. It goes on to the next part. He makes his case to the king. I think a lot of us find ourselves relating to Nehemiah in that we look at the situations in the lives of our friends and our neighbors and even our family members around us and we become overwhelmed because we're overwhelmed because their lives are in ruins. Now it looks nice, it looks nice on the outside, but we say, man, there's just so much that, that I should do, I should be doing something. And we get, we get sad. We get emotional because we're like, I should be doing something. What can I do? Depending on your background, you want to respond in a different way. Maybe I just need to tell them about Jesus every day. Maybe I just need to cook them a meal. You know, maybe I just need to quit my job and volunteer for the UN. You know, we're all moved 
by compassion in different ways. Now, compassion is important because every time the hand of God moved while Jesus was on this earth, it was combined with compassion. Luke chapter 7, Jesus and his disciples see this, uh, this woman walking. It's a funeral. Her only son died. And the Bible says that Jesus was overwhelmed with his compassion. He said, get up. The boy came back to life. When Jesus, when Jesus moved in the miraculous, he was moved by compassion. <laughs> this compassion that you and I feel that we wrestle with it, sometimes we don't even know how to categorize, I believe is, in, is an indication that God wants to do something miraculous through you wherever you are at. Here's the other thing that God wants to do. Not only does he want to do something miraculous through you, he knows the way that he created you. He knows your makeup. He knows your emotional capability. He also knows your competency, your gifts, your talent, your ability. So he's going to take all those things into account because he made you this way. He put you in a place for a purpose, and he's going to use you with whatever skill, whatever inclination, with whatever you've got, with whatever's in your hand. When you're overwhelmed with compassion, that's a signal from Jesus Christ that says, I'm about to do something miraculous through you. Will you do it with me too? Why? Because the Great Commission is a co-mission. It's me and Jesus. When God created this whole thing, he created us to walk and talk with him in the cool of the day, not to just go work in a field somewhere. But God wants to use those tendencies that you have. Now, sometimes we need to rein it in. Because we do so much, and this is what I'm talking about. There's kind of two, two reactions Okay, there's what I call the Nehemiah, which is the womp womp. The world is falling apart. Why am I making this joke? Donald Trump is president. Some of you go, Donald Trump is president. So, I, you know, whatever side spectrum, I don't care. Mm, I can't do anything. I don't make enough money. Nobody listens to me when I talk to them. Maybe you should investigate that one. Um, And we become overwhelmed by our compassion and our empathy turns into something that's actually crippling for us. We become crippled by compassion. And it causes us to stand still. Now, if you recall, one of the greatest strategies of the enemy, of Satan himself, John 10.10, is to steal, kill, and destroy. To destroy meaning to render useless. So if he can keep you crippled by compassion, he's happy. Because at least you're not doing anything. So that's one response. Now, I shouldn't call it the Nehemiah because Nehemiah goes on to rebuild the city in 52 days. <laughs> but it took this conversation with the king. Now, here's, what's, here's what strikes me as something incredible. This king is not a Christian, okay? He's, he's not a Jewish believer at the time. He doesn't even believe in Nehemiah's God. But he believes in Nehemiah. He believes in the person that he is, the character that he is. And Nehemiah is overwhelmed by this compassion. He's kind of, he's feeling like, I got to do something. And the guy who's not even a, a, a believer, doesn't believe the same things, doesn't care about the same things, knows the person, knows the character, and says, what can I do to help you? Is it possible that God has placed you in your position, in your place, 
in your spot, that he's brought you into relationships, that he's brought you into spheres of influence, that he's put you in rooms with just the right people that can say when you're overwhelmed with compassion and you're feeling that God's about to do something, that God is bringing in people who don't even believe what you believe to say, man, uh, this is clearly affecting you. What can I do to help you? And is it possible that along that journey, God's going to reveal something to them through you? Well, I'm preaching better than you're responding right now. <laughs> the other reaction is what I call the Esther. If I perish, I perish. I am going to change the world. <laughs> Whether you're inspired or you're overwhelmed, you need to keep this in your tool bag. First John 3 verse 20. Even when we feel guilty. God is greater than our feelings, and he knows everything. God is greater than our feelings. God is greater than our feelings. Here's what I need to tell you if you're inspired and you're ready to change the world or if you're overwhelmed by compassion. Can I tell you that your resolve won't last? That's my motivational speech for today. You're, you can't do it. Not going to work. The reason it's not going to work is because we have to ask ourselves, what's driving me? If I'm triggered by compassion and I'm ready for God to do something, but I do the work out of obligation and guilt because I think it's the right thing to do, you will never make it. Because you find your identity in the guilt that contemns you, not in Jesus who calls you forward into something. Here's the second thing. You can also do the inspired overreaction. Well, based on my personality here, God, I'm a talker, and so God wants me to talk, and I'm going to let everybody know that though I've been living in secret as a Christian, I'm going to let them know that I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, and everyone in my cubicle land will know the power and the blood of Jesus Christ. And so you show up to work tomorrow, and you're blasting power in the blood. Your screensaver is blood dripping down the screen. You put a giant cross on your desk. And when they come in, and you've been now sitting there since 5.30 in the morning praying, Lord, use me today, use me today, that you stand up on your chair and declare your faith in Jesus Christ, that everyone's going to burn in hell if they do not turn to Jesus, and you just let them know the goods. I call that the divinely inspired overreaction. Please don't do that. Because it's also fueled by our guilt. I didn't do enough. I, I, my life's passed me by. I'm, you know, I'm 27 years old. My life's over. I haven't done anything with my life. And so we overreact, but we're driven by the same thing. It's guilt. Guilt does not accomplish the plans and the purpose of God. I'm going to rephrase. Guilt works for a little while. It works for a little while. But then it falls off. And then what happens? We get guilty because... Our guilt didn't drive us far enough, fast enough. It's a circle. So how do we break the cycle? How do we break the cycle? We understand that Jesus Christ, that God created this word. But this is just wrapping it all back up. Colossians 1. Jesus is that visible image of an invisible God. When God created the whole world, he did it through Jesus in Colossians 1. It was Jesus who spoke in the world came into existence. So when you're building your world, how do we build our world? 
We build our world with Jesus. This is going to be the most deepest thing I've ever said today. Right here. Are you ready? Turn to somebody and say, I'm ready. Read your Bible, pray every day. Read your Bible, pray every day. Pray. And everyone know that song? Pray every day. Read your Bible, pray every day. Uh, grow, grow. And you're like, maybe we'll bring that one back at the end. I don't know. We come all the way back around to our relationship with Jesus. Because he created us, he made us for a purpose. And if we need wisdom and direction from anyone, it's probably the guy who made us and knew where exactly where we were going to end up. But we become distracted and consumed by a gift, our talent, our ability, or our work, our job, and our income. And we kind of leave Jesus in the middle. I mean, we got the t-shirt, WWJD wristband. But when was the last time I actively invited Jesus to my job? Jesus, I need you right here, right now. Jesus, I'm about to walk into a creative meeting at a marketing agency, and they don't like any of my plans, and you're the most original God because you created this thing with a few words, and I could really use your creativity right now. So, Lord, why don't you come into this meeting with me because I need you. And since God placed you there and he positions you there and he wants to do something there with you, don't you think that he's going to come and meet you in this place and do something through you and through your creativity? Don't you think that even though you're crunching the numbers and you're trying to figure out how to make it work, that God's going to divinely and can and will, if you invite him, inspire you to find out where that extra income stream may be for your company so you could work for the universal flourishing of your company, which, if we're being honest, works for the universal flourishing of you? What if we just invited Jesus to come into the room? Because your coworker is heartbroken that her marriage is failing and you don't have the words to say. But you know that Jesus does, and here's the worst part, he does through you. James 2.26, just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. God positioned you to do something, to be something, to to be a catalyst for change. Am I open to what God wants for me? Am I available for when Jesus wants to do something? Or am I so obsessed about him breaking out in the miraculous that I forget that God wants to do the miraculous through my life? Oh, why don't we stand together? I love this quote from Pastor Stephen Furtick. We need a paper plate kind of faith, not a fine china kind of faith. I don't know if anyone grew up with a living room that you were not allowed to enter. Anyone ever have one of those? Or did you ever have those special uh, plates and utensils that only came out for large family functions? Stuff that you could not use in your everyday life. And if you were out of plates, you would wash the old dirty ones instead of pull out the new clean ones because those are for somebody special. Not you. A lot of us wrestle with 
the idea that our faith is a china plate. That we only pull it off when somebody special comes and when we need it. That at work we just we just go through our regular stuff and we don't we just like to find China only when we yeah, only when it's church time. But Jesus is calling us to a paper plate kind of faith. Kind of the thing that works anywhere. That you're not afraid to get dirty, that you're not afraid to use, that you're gonna use a lot of them because we need a lot to bring Jesus into our workplaces a lot. Your workplace needs Jesus. Your office needs Jesus. Your job site needs Jesus. Your friends, your neighbors need Jesus. You say, well, I'm not an evangelist. Great. I'm glad you know who you are. There's a whole other list and there's a whole other variety of ways that God wants to use you. The question is, am I open? Am I open? Am I willing? God wants to do something great through you. You've been listening to the Engage Life, powered by Engage City Church. If you like what you heard, check out engagechurch.ca.